sponsored by Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukma. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today on By Any Means Necessary, we'll be talking about an attack on abortion rights and other democratic rights in the state of Pennsylvania. Also going to be talking about developments on Russia, Ukraine and other geopolitical issues. And it's Tuesday, which means we're having our weekly segment Tech for the People. And to kick things off today, we are very happy to be joined by Tamora Kamran, an organizer with the Philadelphia Liberation Center. Tamora. Thanks so much for joining us. Hey, thanks so much. Glad to be here. Absolutely. And Tamor, uh, recently the Pennsylvania Senate and House passed Senate Bill 106, which is actually a, a package of state constitutional amendments that is set to add language that would specify that, quote, there is no right to abortion in the state of Pennsylvania. Now, uh, my understanding is that for this bill to become law, it must uh, pass another session of the Pennsylvania legislature that's set to take place in September. And also, uh, this bill would also add language that takes aims at other uh, uh, basic rights in terms of voting and things like this. And so I was hoping you could help us understand uh, some of the details of what's going on in Senate Bill 106. I mean, this is obviously kind of a result, a part of the ongoing fallout of the overturning of Roe v. Wade and how you see it sort of factoring in that whole piece. Yeah, for sure. I'd be happy to discuss that. Um, I think the first important point to make is on the procedural aspect of the bill. So constitutional amendments like Pennsylvania constitutional amendments don't go through exactly the same process as a lot of the other bills that go through the the Pennsylvania legislature. And in particular, the difference is that the governor doesn't have veto power over constitutional amendments. And the process is that the Senate and House have to pass the bill twice. So as you stated, they've passed it for the first time um, recently. But they have to pass the bill again in September. And then after that, if it is the case that they pass it twice, there also has to be a public referendum vote. So uh, along with the rest of the 2022 uh, voting that's going on, there would also be a public referendum, I believe actually uh, sometime most likely next year, that would decide uh, whether or not these constitutional amendments become part of the Pennsylvania state constitution. Um, so, yeah, two two times passed in the state legislature and then once in a public referendum. That's what it takes for this bill to become law, essentially. But that's that's the procedural piece. But what what's in the bill? Um, so, as, as you said, it's, it's a package of five different constitutional amendments, um, and they have to do with the right to abortion in the state and then also voting rights. So. The language around abortion is essentially not immediately making abortion legal, but it's specifying that the Constitution of Pennsylvania doesn't have any language that would guarantee that abortion is a, is a protected right by the Constitution. And so what that means is that 
rather than you know immediately making abortion illegal, it creates a pathway for bills restricting or even outlawing abortion to be introduced later on in the legislature, which is controlled by uh, the Republican Party, who has been trying to restrict and limit access to abortion in the state um, for a while now. Um, it, w- it would create a pathway for those types of bills to be introduced and passed by the state legislature. Then the other piece of the bill, um, and I guess we can get into to more detail later, but the other piece is that there's a package of additional restrictions on voting that are included in the bill. So that means things like uh, voter ID law. So the the, pack, the constitutional amendment package is introducing, uh, among other things, this this language that specifies that voters must present an ID that meets certain requirements in order to vote at the polls. Um, and so there's a lot of debate about what the effect is um, of of these voter ID laws on turnout, but it's pretty clear that the history of these laws goes back to Jim Crow and even slavery and attempts to limit the rights of certain parts of the population, in particular black voters, limit the rights of, of voting and also just make it more difficult in general to to get to the polls and to get your vote in. Um, that's kind of just an overview of what's going on. There's also other uh, voting restriction language that's part of the bill, but um, that's sort of the, the the overview. Yeah, definitely. And I also wanted to discuss to more sort of uh, the, the presence and the role of these uh, ultra-right uh, religious figures uh, within the state that are really pushing this kind of thing. And I'm talking about people like uh, Doug Mastriano, who's someone that won the, the, the state Republican Party's gubernatorial uh, primary race uh, back in May. I was hoping you could tell us some about him and how that element of uh, politics within Pennsylvania has uh, really been pushing for this sort of thing. Sure. I mean, uh, so the the Pennsylvania state legislature and a lot of state politics are controlled by pretty right-wing figures. Um, And they they tend to couch their right-wing reactionary politics in religious language. Um, and so they, they portray themselves to their, to their base as being on God's side of attempting to essentially reintroduce in the way that they see it, reintroduce Christianity back into the political life of the United States as like the dominating value system, dominating force. And so uh, Doug Marciano is a, a very important figure in this wider sort of ultra right-wing Christian-oriented movement, uh, which some have described as the Christian nationalist movement. Um, so Doug Mastriano, former Army uh, major, who uh, has been serving on the, the Pennsylvania Senate and uh, most recently won the Republican primary for governor. So, uh, so Doug Mastriano is going to be standing in election against uh, the Democratic candidate who's the current Pennsylvania state attorney general and yeah, trying to win the governor's seat. So this is concerning for, for many reasons. I mean, uh, the, the one is just that Doug Mastriano's actual policies and platform is incredibly, um, right wing and anti people. So, I mean, since we're speaking about the abortion issue, 
Uh, he opposes abortion in all cases, with no exceptions. Uh, right. In addition to many of the other right-wing views that he holds, but uh, perhaps uh, just as shockingly, or even more shockingly, Doug Mastriano was involved in the January January sixteenth or January sixth storming of the Capitol that that took place uh, last year. And so uh, there's video footage that is available online uh, of Doug Mastriano walking through police barricades and into the Capitol building after it was breached by these ultra-right-wing insurrectionaries, if you will, the Trump-oriented movement. And so Doug Mastriano, very much a part of that, physically present at the January 6th uh, events, and also has positioned himself in state politics as the most uh, fervent supporter of Donald Trump's policies. So he's like positioning himself as the most dyed-in-the-wool Trump supporter. Um, and that really speaks to a lot of Pennsylvania's people, unfortunately. There's a, there's a large amount of support for Donald Trump in Pennsylvania. Certainly not the majority, but a solid base of people who who support Donald Trump, and many of whom believe that Donald Trump is the legitimate winner of the previous presidential election. Um, so Doug Mastriano, this person with very fringe views, is possibly going to become the next governor of Pennsylvania. Um, and in, in the context of the constitutional amendment package, it's, it's particularly unsettling because, as I said, it's not these amendment packages aren't making abortion illegal immediately, but they are creating a, creating a pathway. Now, currently, the, the Pennsylvania legislature is controlled by the Republican Party, and they've introduced plenty of legislation uh, to limit abortion access, but there's sort of a, a stumbling block there with the state constitution, which could still be interpreted to uh, guarantee the right to abortion, even with the recent Dobbs ruling. But, and so, for instance, Doug Mastriano has even uh, written and introduced Pennsylvania's own heartbeat bill, which uh, for people who have been following this issue know is a very right-wing restrictive bill that's essentially attempting to limit and outlaw abortion access. And they've introduced this legislation and they can pass it, but because the governor is currently a Democrat uh, who opposes abortion, the legislation doesn't get doesn't get through. It doesn't become law. With Doug Mastriano running for governor, there's a there's a chance that some of these most reactionary, um, ultra right wing policies on abortion and many other things um, could eventually become law. So this amendment package is preparing preparing the ground, so to speak, for a case later on in which. Perhaps Mastriano's governor, the Republicans still control the state legislature, and they're able to put through a number of these bills that could ultimately uh, very seriously restrict or even uh, functionally outlaw abortion access in Pennsylvania. Yeah, and that being the case, Tamor, I mean, (laughs) this almost seems like a silly question to ask because I feel like this is also something that we're seeing 
playing out all across the country ever since the um, overturning of Roe. But I mean, I feel like this stands to have, you know, a really serious impact on the people of Pennsylvania. I mean, it, it's pretty wild as you lay out to have people like Mastriano, who's, you know, not just a right winger, not just anti-abortion, but, you know, as you point out, I mean, someone inside, you know, conspiracy theories and uh, uh, with connections to the, you know, the January 6th attack on the Capitol, as you were saying. And so these are the people in power who are making the decisions for women and for the poor and struggling people of the state. And I feel like that uh, uh, it doesn't really bode well. And, and also, I think, speaks to, you know, the need for there to be sort of a continuing struggle in the streets against these attacks on women's rights and upon abortion rights in general. Oh, for sure. Absolutely. I mean, it's important to note that even though the Republicans control the state legislature, I think the the amendment package passed like 33 to 22 or something like this. Um, so about, you know, two thirds control almost. But just because they control the state legislature doesn't mean that they represent the majority of Americans. I mean, we live in, in many ways, a completely undemocratic system where realistically a minority of people can, can control political power. Um, and so it's definitely the case that the Republican Party in Pennsylvania doesn't, so doesn't represent the interests of the majority of people. And studies have shown that the majority of people in Pennsylvania, for instance, completely support abortion being, you know, legal and easily accessible. Um, and so, yeah, the, the actual establishment politics, like the, the halls of power, are in many ways controlled by people who don't represent the majority. So there's this undemocratic situation that we're living in. And the only solution is for, you know, the, the vast majority of people to become politically activated. And so, I mean, I live in Philadelphia recently when the, the Roe decision was leaked, there were tens of thousands of people in the streets. Um, and then same when, when the decision actually came out. Um, and since then, the, the struggle has certainly ebbed a bit, but there's definitely a lot of energy around this issue. And in general, just the issue of, of people's basic rights, the, the right to, to vote even, which is also under attack in this package, the right to bodily autonomy, right? The right to, to um, even healthcare and so on. These things are, are all rights that the people of Pennsylvania, the people of the country as well, really support in large numbers. Um, everyone wants to be able to go to the doctor. Everyone wants to be able to you know, control their own life and their own future. And so, yeah, it's absolutely crucial that people continue to stay in the streets and continue to put pressure on these legislators um, and make it politically impossible for them to pass this anti-people, anti-worker legislation like this. You know, we like we have the power and we just have to to come together and organize and, and make it real, because if we don't, it's definitely the case that neither of the, the capitalist ruling parties are going to do it for us. Yeah, and that's exactly what I wanted to ask about uh, next to more is, you know, what has the response of the Democrats in Pennsylvania been like to this far right push? I mean, is it uh, sort of reflected of um, the Democrats sort of overall kind of refusal to fight uh, for these things and a lot of these basic Democratic rights? Or, or, or what does that look like inside Pennsylvania? Right. Well, as, as I said, I mean, the Democrats voted against this bill for the most part, Um I think there might have been one Democrat that voted for it. Um, 
And, you know, rhetorically, at least, they've been taking a, a stand against um, against the attacks on abortion rights. But it's really been limited to rhetoric in many ways. Um, the, the Democratic Party could have easily had, you know, their their voter base in the streets when, when this decision went out. They could have used these sort of political tactics that have been part of social movements, um, you know, since they've been around. Um, political tactics that have been in use in Pennsylvania for hundreds of years um, to really raise up the people and and you know mount a serious de- uh, a serious defense against these attacks on abortion rights. Um, but you know that's just really not how they operate, and uh, they've 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 really failed to to mount any serious defense. I mean, in in lieu of controlling the the legislature, really all they can do and all they've told the people is to you know make sure to vote for them and to to donate to their campaigns. So it's definitely disappointing because uh, we know that the way to oppose these types of ultra reactionary measures is really through the movement of the people. It's the movement of the masses. That's like where real change can can, can get made. That's where the rubber meets the road. Um, so it's definitely disappointing to see the Democrats um, failed to mount this sort of defense, although you can say it's definitely not surprising because the same has been the case nationally. Um, but there's also been some other concerning developments um, that I want to talk about briefly. So recently, the Philadelphia Inquirer reported that the Democratic Party and, and PA, um, in particular, the, the campaign of, of uh, Pennsylvania State Attorney General Josh Shapiro, who's running for the governor's office uh, against Doug Mastriano actually paid for campaigns that seemed to support Doug Mastriano's campaign in the Republican primary. And so the assumption is that uh, the Shapiro campaign believes that he has a better chance of winning against Mastriano when compared to some of the other more moderate candidates that were running in the race. Um, and so in order to uh, secure a more winnable primary race, uh, the Democratic Party has been paying for these television ads that describe Mastriano as the candidate that really represents you know, people who support Donald Trump, um, who opposes abortion, who really holds all of these ultra-right-wing positions that, while you know, reactionary and despicable, definitely appeal to a large section of Trump's base. Um, and so the concern is that the Democratic Party have been pursuing this very narrow electoral strategy of trying to you know, make sure the person that wins the Republican Party is their pick, quote-unquote, uh, the person they think that they have the best chance of beating. But the strategy is so narrow-minded because it, it completely forgets the the obvious problem that you're promoting someone with these ultra right wing, you know, nearly fascistic views. I mean, Doug Mastriano is a guy who has come out and said that he doesn't believe in the separation between church and state. Um, And so, I mean, his vision for America is really for it to be a a white Christian nation, uh, whatever that means. And so, you know, whether or not the Democrats are correct in their calculation that they have a better chance of, of beating Mastriano, which, if we think back, I'm sure uh, Hillary Clinton's campaign also thought that she had a great chance of beating 
Donald Trump, right? How could someone like Donald Trump win the presidential election? Right. So that's that's essentially uh, something very concerning that, that's been going on, right? They're they're trying to to promote this um, this candidate, and they're forgetting that at the same time they're giving a platform and they're amplifying these very uh, problematic and even you know, borderline fascistic views of Doug Mastriano. So the Democratic Party, right, has been inept at, um, at opposing Mastriano, especially in rural areas, which they've basically abandoned to the Republican Party. And, and they've also not just ineffectively opposed um, these attacks on abortion rights in the Republican Party, but they've actually been promoting some of the worst elements in some cases, as part of this very narrow-minded electoral strategy. Definitely. Well, we thank you so much, Tamor, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there and move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back, so please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today we're talking about developments in Russia, Ukraine, and elsewhere. And we're happy to be joined for this conversation today by international affairs and security analyst Mark Sloboda. Mark, thanks so much for joining us. Sean, thanks for having me. It's always an honor and a pleasure to be on by any means necessary. Well, the pleasure is all ours, Mark. And uh, today, Russian President Vladimir Putin is uh, set to embark on a trip to uh, uh, the Middle East where uh, he reportedly will meet with uh, Iranian President Ibrahim Raisi and also uh, Turkish President Recep Erdogan. And this is uh, also only Putin's uh, second trip outside of Russia uh, since the invasion of Ukraine in February of this year. And, of course, uh, this trip for Putin comes not long after U.S. President Joe Biden had his own tour of the Middle East, you know, sort of bebopping between Israel and uh, uh, Saudi Arabia, uh, of course, in a sort of bid, I think, to sort of counter Iran, China and Russia. But, uh, Mark, from your perspective, I mean, what do you see as the significance of these meetings that Putin is set to have with uh, the heads of Turkey and Iran? And why is it important for Russia to try to firm up some of these relationships in this moment. Yeah, okay, so this is a really substantive trip for for, for once in, in, in terms of, uh, you know, uh, foreign policy trips. I, I think there is a number of both important uh, economic and military uh, agreements that Russia and Iran are signing uh, at the presidential level, so you know they're 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 fairly significant, uh, as well as a diplomatic effort underway, uh, where uh, Putin and Raisi are going to try to uh, cajole uh, pressure Erdogan into not. Um, beginning a long-announced, uh, much ballyhooed military, further military foray into Syria to seize territory. Uh, I, so um, 
on, on the economic front, uh, first of all, um, there's new initiatives for um, trade between the Russian ruble and the Iranian currency uh, and to move away from the dollar in each other's relations. And that is significant. Trade between Russia and Iran are up 30 percent this year. Right. Well, you know, you see trade elsewhere declining, you know, between allies like Russia and Iran, trade is increasing and increasingly, according to plans, but ever going further, they're divesting themselves. So they're dealing in each other's currency. And for the first time, the Russian ruble is now uh, uh, listed in uh, trade on the Iranian stock exchange. And that just came about today. Um, also, Gazprom is making a major investment in Iranian gas fields. I've heard the number floated around the $40 billion worth, which is a pretty significant chunk of change, especially, you know, coming as it is in the midst of, of, of all that Russia is in economic and militarily uh, in the conflict in Ukraine. Uh, further, I understand uh, that there is going to be strategic cooperation agreements between Russia and Iran signed, in my opinion, long overdue. And these are on a par with strategic partnership relationships that Iran has long had with China. So you see this three-way alliance taking on new strategic and military uh, developments between the three of them, kind of a triumvirate. Um, and then, um, you know, uh, one of the things I, I think should be mentioned, there's been a lot of talk in the Western media, which is the only where you've heard this about Iran supplying uh, combat drones to Russia for Ukraine, complete Western disinformation. It's only Western media that is reporting it. It is similar to earlier Western disinformation about China providing drones and other military assistance to Russia and Ukraine. Russia doesn't need military assistance of that sort in Ukraine. And Iran doesn't even have hundreds of combat drones of their own much less to, to, to give to Russia that Russia needs. So I don't know why. I, it's very hard to imagine why the West keeps making up disinformation like this. I can only assume it was meant to kind of um, confuse the leaders of Saudi Arabia uh, on, uh, you know, ahead of Biden's trip there. But I seriously doubt that the crown prince there is quite as stupid as Biden seems to think he is. <laughs> yeah, I tend to agree. And I mean, maybe this is an aside, Mark, but I mean, you know, uh, of course, we mentioned Turkish President uh, uh, Recep Erdogan. Uh, what do you make of, you know, him saying or basically threatening to, to freeze the the NATO membership bids of uh, Sweden and Finland. I mean, wh I mean, what's that about? And what do you see as the impacts? This is Erdogan being Erdogan. He hasn't. He has an a, a opportunity to exploit with extreme leverage, and that is one thing that Erdogan does. He plays countries off of each other. He sees that this is a cow that can yet be milked. He already had the F-16 deal with the U.S. that was canceled, essentially renewed with a new name. Um, he had restrictions on uh, military uh, military and dual-use experts uh, from Finland and Sweden uh, uh, ruled. Um, he had them agree uh, to, to make new um, recognition uh, of the PKK uh, and the YPG in Syria, the Kurds, uh, as terrorists. Um, but according to the deal, he was also supposed to get uh, Kurdish uh, 
uh, political refugees who have since become citizens of both countries, some of them even politicians elected uh, in the new countries they're now from. He wants them extradited to face uh, crimes because the uh, Erdogan, the Turkish government, considers them terrorists. I have to say that is obviously not going to happen. You're not going to see Sweden and Finland giving up their citizens. And I'm sure Erdogan knows that. So there's something else he wants to sweeten the pot before he further agrees to this. He's going to melt this for all it's worth. This is nothing to do with principle. This is all about Erdogan exploiting a situation for as much as he can get. Yeah, that, that seems to be the case. And, you know, I'm also wondering about uh, this situation with Volodymyr Zelensky, of course, uh, the president of Ukraine, who has suspended two high ranking officials in his government, uh, namely Prosecutor General Irina Venediktova and State Security Service Head uh, Ivan Bakanov, uh, uh, reportedly over, you know, uh, uh, allegations of collaborations with Russia. I mean, it kind of this kind of feels like a go-to excuse at this point for Zelensky to summarily uh, uh, dismiss people or, you know, to ban opposition parties and all these sorts of things that, I mean, frankly, we just don't hear about at all uh, in the West. And particularly in this moment, really, it's two things for me. In uh, this moment where we're told that, um, you know, everything is supposedly going so well in terms of uh, Ukraine and its, uh, you know, military efforts effort uh, against uh, the Russian military. And I don't know, it just sort of seems like a a strange timing for uh, a government shakeup. So, I mean, what do you think Zelensky is really uh, uh, doing here, Mark? And, uh, you know, what do you make of this timing? Yeah, I mean, there's no question, of course, that Zelensky is showing increasingly uh, authoritarian and paranoid tendencies. But this one seems to actually be above board. He's not actually accusing them specifically of treason yet. He has had them removed and they have been removed. It's happened in the last few hours. It had to uh, be approved through the RADA, which quickly did so. They've both been removed. Um, And the issue is that within their respective agencies, there have been over 700 Uh, government and law enforcement officials who have been identified as traitors for collaborating with Russia. And that really should come as no surprise because the government of Ukraine was overthrown in 2014 and they didn't replace every single person in the government ranks Um, And uh, there is a lot of people who are not happy with Zelensky, his regime, uh, you know, how the Maidan seized power, everything that has happened in the country since. Um, And I mean, you see it both at the government level and at the individual level. Very quietly, Western media has reported, not putting all the pieces together, but individually, usually in a proving tone, that in every city in Ukraine, every major city, that hundreds of people have been arrested for collaboration with Russia. At this point, it is surely in the thousands. 
you might ask, why is that? Why are so many people? Why are so many government officials? Right? Why are sixty intelligence agents as you know as part of these latest charges? Um, because this government is, despite the way it's presented in the Western media, is not very popular. There's a lot of people who don't like the course of the country has taken. There are, after all, tens of thousands of Ukrainians fighting on uh, the Russian side of this conflict, as we refer to it. Really, it's a Russian intervention in a Ukrainian civil conflict. And it has to be said that the head of the SPU, Ivan Bakanov, he is actually a lifelong childhood friend of Zelensky. This oh, is wow. serious stuff. They go way back. He was in uh, Kvartal 95, which was um, Zelensky's uh, comedic company where he made his uh, millions, uh, tens of millions. So, And then he was brought in to head the SBU uh, once uh, Zelensky um, was uh, anointed president uh, by Kolomoisky, the oligarch. So um, this is pretty significant. It shows, um, you know, uh, heightened levels of paranoia. And the Ukrainian media is reporting that Zelensky survived an assassination attempt a couple of days ago, with no mention of who it might have been. Um, whether this is related to these uh, you know, ongoing firings, I don't know about that. The list of people who want, would want Zelensky assassinated, both within Ukraine and outside of it, is quite long. So I don't want to speculate uh, onto that. But, um, you know, it is uh, coming at a very coincidental time. Yeah. No. Well, I appreciate you uh, breaking that down. I mean, that's that's interesting that Bakunov is a childhood friend. I mean, the reports I've seen just described him as a close associate. But it seems like he's uh, uh, known him quite a bit longer than that. And, you know, it's wild that, you know, you mentioned that the cat used to work for uh, Zelensky's comedic company. Like, you know, in all this, I actually forgot that Zelensky was a comedian. And that's like literally how he rose to prominence and eventually yeah, uh, became president. He played a virtual president, who a guy who accidentally became president and saved the country. I mean, he is a literally made-in-TV virtual candidate uh, and, you know, has, has long been the creature of the oligarch Kolomoisky, who hosted that TV show and had his presidential bid announced on his television and channel and media empire and promoted him all the way to the top. And amazingly enough, Kolomoisky, you know, uh, after being on the outside, with the Poroshenko regime uh, that preceded Zelensky was suddenly relieved of all charges and, uh, you know, brought back into the fold of the country right after Zelensky was, uh, you know, uh, became the ruler uh, of the Kiev regime. So, you know, take that for what it's worth. Yeah, definitely. And, and I feel like that's connected to sort of a broader um, narrative that I feel like a lot of uh, people in the United States, you know, don't really consider because, you know, so much of the media that we get and the messaging that we get as it concerns uh, Ukraine, Russia, and really a lot of things is devoid of any context or history. Because I kind of feel like the fact that Zelensky was even elected, I mean, people were aware that he was a comedian. I feel like that that was reflective of, you know, uh, uh, how politics 
politics were operating in Ukraine at that time. And of course, we're talking about a country that, you know, has been living in this, you know, post-coup reality since 2014 with all of this uh, direct involvement and interference in the West. And I feel like all of these things is what uh, uh, sort of at the root of a lot of what we see in Ukraine right now. Now, of course, it goes back further than 2014. But even still, it's just sort of a reminder that what we're seeing unfold in front of us now in 2022, it just sort of feels like the culmination of things that have been happening for years and years. But yet in the West, you know, it's boiled down to this, you know, incredibly simplified uh, uh, boogeyman narrative uh, uh, from Moscow that is sort of the, the driving factor of everything. Yeah, I mean, the, the Western media is, I mean, I'm just amazed. It's like Baghdad Bob levels of propaganda about Ukraine. I mean, it, 90% of it is just regurgitated stenography from exactly what the Kiev regime says. Um, and Ukrainian domestic politics since, uh, in the, you know, uh, they achieved independence from the Soviet Union in 92 has been dominated by the, the powerful oligarchs that run the country. The, Ma- the Maidan was domestically funded. Uh, you know, in part, they'd also got a lot of foreign money, of course, but by uh, these oligarchs, Poroshenko himself was an oligarch, uh, somewhat smaller than some of the others, uh, but, you know, but there were, you know, coalition building. And then we saw him replaced by the, you know, the personal creation, basically, of another oligarch. So that, 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 pattern continues. But uh, in the last months, Zelensky has banned all political opposition in the country. They've banned it. I mean, every party that was against the Maidan banned 15 political parties. Um, He's also taken absolute control of the entirety of the media in Ukraine under a unified media policy. He had already banned all of the media representing East Ukraine before the intervention already began. And the media empires is how the big oligarchs have long exercised political and social influence in Ukraine. So the fact that all of them have suddenly had their media empires taken away from them by Zelensky as he you know seeps keeps to seeks to keep this regime together you have to imagine there's quite a few of them that are not very happy about that they've had their political levers uh, taken away from them and uh, you know there must be some doubt whether they'll ever get them back so there's a, a lot of oligarchic political fighting happening underneath the blankets going on in Ukraine right now. And some of that may be showing out, but you'll never hear about that in the Western media that tries to prevent, present this, you know, uh, white hat, uh, you know, story of, uh, you know, a liberal democratic uh, utopia, uh, you know, which uh, it's, it's, it's pretty much uh, in Orwellian uh, reversal of the situation. Yeah, and that makes me wonder. I mean, given these internal political conflicts happening in the Zelensky government and uh, the sort of general reality of political repression that's happening in Ukraine, I mean, Mark, how do you see this reflected in the state of things in uh, the Ukraine war to today, I mean, I mean, do you think that we're sort of seeing some ripple effects from that in Ukraine of you know uh, a proxy war that you know what was already already had a narrative around it that was shaky at least in terms of uh, uh, what was being put forth in the West? And I mean, like, just how do you see that playing out? I mean. There has been a civil conflict in Ukraine for eight years. There are Ukrainians on both sides of this conflict. There are tens of thousands of Ukrainians fighting 
on the Russian side against the West-backed regime in Kiev. Thousands of collaborators, ordinary citizens have been arrested. Now hundreds of government and law officials have uh, been charged with treason as well. And you see these high positions being removed. We've also seen at least two Kiev regime government officials be gunned down in the streets, uh, supposedly for treason, including one of the Kiev regime's own first peace negotiators, Denis Kyriv. And this wasn't hidden. Uh, this was trumpeted in the Ukrainian media as, as you know, some kind of, you know, strong action against treason, against all of the thousands and thousands of people who seem very unhappy with this regime and what has happened in the country in 2014. Um, and you put all those pieces together and you see a regime that is crumbling, right? And is only keeping control of the country through political uh, uh, repression, uh, uh, you know, enforced by its brown shirts, far right, banderite fascist militias like Azov, the right sector, Idar, uh, Karpathia Siege and dozens of others. Um, and on, on the uh, other hand, um, you see this uh, political repression uh, and the fact that they are filling their military ranks with cannon fodder through mass forced conscription. No male citizen between the ages of 16 and 60 is allowed to leave the country because they're all being sent in waves to the front, uh, you know, a gun shoved in their hand and to serve as cannon fodder. If they're lucky, they get a couple of weeks of training. Um, and that's why you see that, uh, you know, there are in excess of 15,000 Kiev regime troops uh, who have surrendered uh, to uh, Russian and Donbass forces and are now sitting out the remaining. Uh, of the time in prisoner of war camps. And I expect this to continue. Definitely. Well, we thank you so much, Mark, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there and move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And it's Tuesday, which means we're having another edition of our weekly segment, Tech for the People, where we're joined by technologist Chris Carafa, co-host of the Covert Action Bulletin podcast. Chris, thanks so much for joining us. Oh, as always, great to be back with you, Sean. Thank you. Absolutely. And uh, Chris, on TechCrunch, it's recently been reported about uh, some new documents that reveal really a huge scale of uh, the U.S. government's location data tracking on cell phones. Uh, what do we know uh, about these documents and what precisely do they reveal? Well, what they're what the ACLU is uh, doing here is that they've been involved in a lawsuit against the U.S. government for a number of years. And in fact, uh, some of this actually goes back to 2020 and earlier when they first filed a FOIA, Freedom of Information Act, request for some of this information. But what we've shown is really the culmination of, of things that have been kind of trickling out. 
it shows that the Department of Homeland Security, and in particular, both ICE and CBP, Customs and Border Protection, are buying location data from cell phone uh, about cell phone users, and they're buying it from private companies. And of course, that is a distinct change um, and really uh, a way to that they're trying to use to get around the policies um, that are the, and the scrutiny around direct government intervention and surveillance of cell phones. So what we found out is that in uh, three days in 2018 alone, Customs and Border Protection got over 113,000 location points. That's, uh, as TechCrunch points out, more than 26 per minute. And these location points basically identify a phone and where they are. So that's not necessarily 113,000 individual phones. That's tracking phones through uh, as they're moving uh, through space and time. They're getting this information. They're buying it, again, from private companies. They're saying that, uh, you know, these companies are, like Ventel and so many others, buy this information from smartphone apps. So what happens is a developer puts a some special software into their smartphone app, and most of the time it's something that is supposed to help them out, uh, provide some functionality or create, you know, make it easier for them to look at issues and, and errors and figure out where the app is crashing. But these, uh, these SDKs also embed uh, some location tracking often. Or there are others where they just tell the hey, you and this, and we're going to just go, we're going to uh, give you a little bit of money for every user we get information on. That information is then resold to places like Ventel, who clearly then pull it all together and sell it to whoever wants to buy it, including CBP and ICE. It's particularly important to me to point out that CBP using this um, should not just be a concern for people, you know, who live very close to the uh, Canadian Mexican borders, because courts have defined the border as a hundred miles from basically any land or water entry point to the United States. So not just the Canadian and Mexican borders but the oceans as well. A hundred miles inland from points is considered to be the border where CBP has the ability to restrict your Fourth Amendment rights. Uh, the majority of people in the United States live within that hundred mile uh, zone in around all of those borders. So particularly concerning. And this data, of course, coming from a 2020 FOIA request is actually a little old. Uh, and needs we need to also see some of the new data, um, and that should be publicized. Uh, I, you know, I believe as part of this lawsuit and as part of the investigation, uh, Congress actually needs to get involved here and force CBP and the rest of DHS, in fact, to publicize a lot more transparency about what, what they're using this data for, how much they've collected, and where they're getting it from. 
Yeah, definitely. And reportedly, uh, the ACLU reviewed over 6,000 records that contained roughly 336,000 location points uh, across North America that they got from people's phones. And I mean, I feel like at this point, you know, uh, uh, Chris, that, you know, privacy uh, in the U.S. is, uh, you know, has just been obliterated. But I mean, I feel like, you know, this this revelation sort of gives kind of a, a, a hint or helps paint a picture of just, I mean, the the scale of it. And, you know, while I think that uh, uh, the rank and file person in the U.S. may be somewhat aware of uh, some of this, it's I don't know. I tend to think that maybe a lot of people don't quite get just how deep this goes and, you know, just what's being done with our information and how vulnerable a lot of us are. Right. And DHS lawyers are apparently saying, well, people are opting into this. You know, we're not doing anything wrong because people are opting into this. But first of all, you know, who reads the terms of service, you know, for every app that you download? I mean, some people, you know, I I don't even read all of them, but certainly some people do and study this. But that doesn't get the massive, you know, kind of attention that it should get. Um, So really, the, the problem is that the apps are allowed to gather this information when they don't need it, store it, repackage it, sell it. And then these other companies like Ventel are able to package it up again and sell it to the government. Another problem, of course, being that the government is allowed to even buy this information and have it uh, on its own. So there are so many levels here, right? And to blame people for installing smartphone apps uh, is really just offensive to me. I mean, yes, we should be aware and we should be paying attention to the apps that we install and the risks that come with all of those apps. But let's be honest here. We just want to play a game or get on that latest social network that all of our friends are on to watch some funny videos. And no one is sitting there thinking day in and day out what the privacy implications are of these kinds of, of things, um, which is why we need to thank you know organizations like the EFF, the ACLU, and so many others for actually doing this hard work. At the same time, while we do need to be cognizant of this, we also need to be organizing to say that you know what, we're going to oppose not just government surveillance like this, but also the corporate surveillance. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, these companies know that, too. They know that we just want to use the app or the social network or play the game or whatever, and that people will hit. I agree on just about everything if they can just get to the thing they're trying to get to. Uh, switching gears uh, a little bit, Chris, uh, uh, The Verge actually published an interesting piece here recently uh, talking about a, a, pol- a form uh, at Amazon that police can fill out to retrieve people's data, I believe from the Amazon ring cameras or our old friends, the ring cameras, um, uh, without a warrant or permission. I mean, what's going on here? Yeah, well, we found out last week in a response letter from Amazon to Senator Ed Markey of Massachusetts is that uh, Amazon isn't being entirely truthful when it says that it's not going to access your data, your videos from your ring camera uh, and hand them over to police without your permission. What they've said in the past is that you have to opt in and say, yes, the police can have this video from this time from my ring camera. But Amazon is giving cops a way around that. They're saying that if there's some kind of life-threatening emergency, the police can just say, we need access from this camera or the cameras here, uh, and then Amazon will just give it to them. And they've done so 11 times this year alone, and we're only in, uh, the, we're only in July here. Uh, and that letter was actually dated July 1st. So for, for six months, 
Amazon did that 11 times. What we've seen in the past is that when uh, police have this kind of access, they increase, you know, year over year, they use it more and more frequently, uh, especially now that it's gotten some attention. Police may, departments that may not have even known about this, likely smaller departments, may in fact be more likely to try to partner up with Amazon and use this. You know, I understand why people have these uh, cameras on their doorbells. There's convenience. They feel a sense of security. But in reality, they're really not providing security for community Uh they're actually because if you're just walking by, if you're just driving by at the time that the police request a video of you could be caught up in some kind of investigation, whether or not you did anything or not, uh, just because to be on the street or you happen to uh, you know, be walking on the sidewalk. Yeah, that's pretty wild. That's pretty wild. But I mean, that that seems to be just part and parcel of the broader issues uh, uh, with these ring cameras. And I think we've uh, spoke before on the show, Chris, about how, you know, ring gets in these pilot programs uh, uh, with different policing agencies uh, around the country. And as I think you noted a moment ago, I mean, (laughs) there's no evidence that these uh, uh, cameras actually make anyone safer. Certainly the law enforcement uh, data doesn't seem to reflect that. And I mean, it just feels like, you know, a tech company producing this uh, surveillance product that's that seemingly can be used by law enforcement at will. And I mean, I feel like the implications of that, as you just laid out, you know, for the regular public people who are just trying to go about their lives is really uh, uh, pretty dangerous. But I think it shows not only the dangers of um, sort of products like the Amazon ring cam, but what happens when we have these tech companies have all these partnerships with law enforcement agencies. Yeah, that's absolutely right. I mean, look, they could already get this kind of stuff with a warrant. Uh, they don't have to just ask. They, you know, first step, they would just ask the owner of the camera, can we have this video? And the owner can say yes or no. If they say no, they can get a court order, a warrant, uh, you know, a subpoena, something like that, right, and get this from Amazon. But they're just completely sidestepping that at this point with this new emergency form. And they don't really define well what an emergency is. So it's up to police to say, well, this is an emergency, here's the deal, and then Amazon to say, well, yeah, okay, that sounds good to us. We're not there on the ground. We can't see what's happening. Uh, here's your here's your stuff. We don't want to get in the way of law enforcement. And when they're asked, when Am- when Amazon is asked what the efficiency rate or what the crime prevention rate is with these cameras, all they ever say is how many videos are taken. They say how many times police have asked for videos. Uh, they don't really provide any kind of information on you know how many crimes are actually solved from these videos. They don't provide any information on um, arrests that are that have led to conviction. You know, the basic things that even a you know so-called law and order, you know, person would want to know in order to measure the impact of a surveillance system like this. Um, even that is not something Amazon tracks. They're not asking for that information uh, and they're certainly not releasing it publicly if they are. Yeah, that's a fact. Uh, One more thing that I wanted to touch on today, Chris, Um, we actually discussed this a little bit um, earlier this week about uh, a CIA CIA programmer named Joshua Schultz, um, who was found guilty of leaking uh, the Vault 7 hacking materials to WikiLeaks, even though there doesn't appear to be any real evidence that he did that. Uh, What's the latest on what's happening with Schultz? 
Yeah, well, Schulte was convicted. Um, there was three days of jury deliberation. He was convicted um, after representing himself in the case. Um, and what he said was, he said, I'm not the person who did this. Uh, the The government tried to say, well, he was using tools like Tor and Tails and other technical tools that are known by people who are interested in privacy, not, you know, the, the not just the kind of quintessential idea of the hacker, you know, in a hoodie, you know, with a dark, you know, dark screen, right? These are tools that people can use, journalists, um, activists, you know, human rights workers to remain private. And they said the, a lot of the crux of the, the case relied on the fact that he was using these tools. Well, we should remember what it is that Vault 7 was and why the CIA and the U.S. government are so hell-bent on somebody to go to jail for this. Uh, and that's because Vault 7, released by WikiLeaks, exposed the, some of the CIA hacking tools, uh, how they got into phones, computers, cars, how they made attacks look like they were coming from Russia or China or North Korea, when in fact they were coming from the U.S. government uh, itself. Um, Let's remember, too, that after Vault 7 was released, that is when the Trump administration started to make plans to assassinate Julian Assange. Thankfully, that did not go through, but that was at the highest levels a conversation that Mike Pompeo was having in the Trump administration. Definitely. I mean, there is a connection between this and the whole uh, uh, mistreatment, not even mistreatment, really outright suppression of uh, uh, whistleblowers who have the audacity to do real journalism and talk about the crimes of the U.S. government and others. And, uh, you know, the issue, of course, is not that they said something that was untrue, but that they had the audacity to tell the rest of us that same truth. Well, we thank you so much, Chris, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there and move to a break here on by any means necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By any means necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here of Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Oh, yes, we're here. We're back. Top of the hour. It is Tuesday, July 19th, 2022. And of course, in 20 minutes, you'll be able to give us a call by any means necessary to give us your thoughts, ideas, questions or concerns about anything you've heard on this show today. Anything at all relevant happening on this earth. We want to hear from you. And at that time, you'll be able to hit us up at 202-521-1320. That's two. 02521-1320. Our operators are standing by. You can also hear by any means necessary on sputniknews.com slash radio underscore by underscore any underscore means. You can also check us out on sputnik.mave.digital. That's right. You can download us at sputnik.mave.digital. And of course, we're streaming live on rumble.com. 
Well, you can go to rumble.com slash C slash B-A-M necessary. But wherever you are in this world, we most certainly want to hear from you. And we are very happy to be joined for the hour today by Chuck Modianu, a justice journalist and sports writer for Deadspin. Chuck, thanks so much for coming on with us today. Hey, great to be here, Sean, as always. Absolutely, absolutely. And uh, Chuck, uh, officials in D.C. have said this week that they are basically deciding whether or not they want to release security camera video footage that might show when an off-duty police commander by the name of Jason Bagshaw fatally shot 23-year-old David Wilson of Dumfries, Virginia. And this happened at the uh, uh, Waterfront Entertainment District in Washington, D.C. For people who don't know, this was a multi, multi, multi million dollar piece of prime real estate that the city literally sold to developers for a single dollar. That's right. One dollar. No, I'm not exaggerating. Um, In the response to this, uh, and this really struck me, uh, police chief Robert J. Conti III uh, basically praised Bagshaw and his wife, who reportedly tackled a man who was with uh, the deceased Mr. Wilson. Chief Conti said that um, they, quote, went toward the danger and they took action. I think it says a lot about the city. We've seen across this country mass shootings that have happened all over the place. I mean, I got to say it's pretty disgusting um, to sort of, uh, you know, use these recent mass shootings, you know, as some kind of, uh, you know, uh, emotional motivator in this. But, you know, of course, Chuck, uh, the name Jason Bagshaw is one that is familiar to uh, uh, any activists or organizers who spend uh, time in the streets in D.C. Uh, organizing protest. He's known as a violent person, and that's no rumor. I mean, he's on video literally tossing uh, uh, people out of demonstrations physically, uh, uh, busting windows out of vans, things like this. Just uh, a brutal, uh, violent person who uh, uh, recently was uh, promoted in April because, you know, you get rewarded when you do a good job, right? And so when I saw that Bagshaw was the killer cop, uh, uh, even though he was off-duty, Chuck, it did not uh, surprise me at all. And so, you know, local activists are calling for the uh, release of the video to really show what happened uh, more to the point, an unedited video. As we know, you know, D.C. police, like many cops around the country, like to edit uh, a video to, to show a particular narrative. And according to officials, they I mean, there's a couple of different stories that we're that, that I've been seeing reported in The Washington Post. It, it talks about the, you know, the possibility of of an armed robbery going on or or a conflict between uh, David Wilson, the guy he was with, and some other guys that were from D.C. Uh, some things are not clear at this point, but I'm just wondering what you're making of this, Chuck, as someone who, you know, has seen Bagshaw in, in action in the streets. Well, we've all seen Bagshaw in the streets. And Bagshaw's a notorious name, okay? It's no, if you had to pick one name, of all the D.C. police officers and talk to any protester, I mean hundreds of protesters, and say, which officer do you despise the most? They'll say Jason Bagshaw. All of them. Uh, everyone. So when the name Jason Bagshaw came out, you know, Twitter went ablaze. That's all they heard. Because Jason Bagshaw has a violent reputation. Jason Bagshaw has an aggressive 
reputation. Jason Bagshaw, as you mentioned, when he broke the window, that was a Portland snack van that they came 3,000 miles feed protesters. That was on the March of Washington weekend. You could go to the video and see him running up on the van and break the window, then arrest everyone in the van for no reason at all. People were no papered afterwards. Um, we've seen him not only arrest people and be very aggressive, but arrest the family of Karan Hilton, both parents. I was there on the street the night that his team just pulled out um, the mother of Karan Hilton and arrested her while she's grieving. Um, there are so many examples of, of, of times where there shouldn't have been tear gas, there shouldn't have been rubber bullets, and he's the one commanding the group to, to move forward. So we know about his aggression, right? What we don't know is all the details, and, and this, which is why we need the videotape. We don't know those details. We need to see the videotape. The MPD does not have a good history of releasing videotape. They're normally they're a whole bunch of hoops. We need to see that. We don't know exactly what happened, but we do know something. And what we know is if there is a choice between escalation and de-escalation, between aggression and making peace in a situation, Jason Bagshaw will always err on the side of aggression. So we're having two different conversations. Even when everything comes out, there, there might be a conversation, did he have a legal right? thing to do would another officer have not pulled a trigger and everything we know about jason bagshaw means hey, if there was any gray area to deal with he would eliminate that gray area yeah definitely and i mean people i think understandably have been um you know reposting and retweeting uh video and images from 2020 during the height of uh the george floyd protest here in dc which of course was happening all across the country as a part of this uh rebellion against racism that brought millions of people into uh, uh the streets and it's actually wild to think that that was just two years ago i mean that that area you know around uh, the white house and what is now uh, uh, called Black Lives Matter Plaza, this, you know, sort of personal PR campaign of the mayor, Muriel Bowser, whose policies harm black lives every day and have for the entirety of her um, tenure as mayor. But uh, to me, it it drives home the connection, particularly with the the individual figure of Bagshaw. Um, It drives home the connection between the role of police as a tool of political suppression as well as one of uh, uh, racist terror. So those things are connected. You know, they're a part of the same function of the police as an institution. And as such, uh, uh, a lot of the the local leadership, well, maybe it's not fair to say a lot, certainly uh, uh, the mayor and other elements within uh, the local government, even outside of the mayor's office, um, tend to be supportive of the police, want to give them uh, more money and all these sorts of things. I mean, this is why, you know, when when Bowser first had the street painted with uh, Black Lives Matter, uh, there was a group of uh, local organizers who came and attached a defund the police to it and painted that on the street just to, you know, really drive home what it was and to also highlight the hypocrisy of Bowser even doing that. You know what I mean? And so it's it's just like this, uh, I don't know, this like inescapable sort of thing we see when it comes to the police. They don't just serve one function. Uh, under this system, they serve uh, several. And as we see in the case of someone like Bagshaw, uh, they tend to be duly rewarded for it as well. Well, I think that's the problem. You mentioned Conti's comments, but more important, what was you mentioned before that? 
This is the most hated officer around, and he got promoted in April to commander. So I, when I said Lieutenant Bagshaw, I'm technically incorrect. It's Commander Bagshaw. Mm-hmm. How can you have the most hated police officer, the most aggressive police officer, violent police officer that we see, that, that every single peaceful protester has complained about, and you promote him. And you do that after January 6th. And, and that, that part's important because if you follow the months leading up to January 6th, mainly December 12th and November 14th, when all of the, the neo-Nazis and Proud Boys and Trumpers came, you see how cordial their pictures, there's video, how cordial he is with them, okay? And, and more cordial with them than the, the, those who were protesting George Floyd. And, and of course, we did not see the behavior, certainly by the Capitol Police, but even by NPD towards the white supremacists, as you saw the aggression towards those fighting for racial justice. So you see that dichotomy. And what happens? What happens is he gets promoted to commander. Good job. So that's the problem. It's a systemic problem. And, and that's, that's Chief Conti, that's um, the Mayor Bowser, and that's anyone who's in charge who helped promote him. And this is what you get. Definitely. And, um, you know, uh, I just want to read a brief a sentence here from the Washington Post recording on that, where they say that Bagshaw was, quote, promoted in April to run the Special Operations Division, overseeing tactical officers, uh, civil disturbance units, uh, domestic security, traffic safety and special events, which includes planning and handling large scale demonstrations. And one thing that's also been mentioned uh, uh, along with this, uh, uh, Chuck was the recent shooting at uh, a concert that was happening in DC. I believe it was uh, Mochella, if I'm not uh, mistaken, which is sort of a, a popular uh, go-go platform that you know holds these uh, uh, go-go concerts uh, not only in DC but actually around the country, which I think is pretty cool. Sort of exporting uh, uh, DC culture in that way. And so there was a 15-year-old boy uh, that was killed tragically at this. Uh, 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 last uh, uh, Mochella, which you know, if I'm not mistaken, I think has to be the 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 one of the first major incidents of violence that we've even seen. But of course, as a response, we're seeing. I mean, not only sort of an attack on like uh, uh, you know the go-go concerts in general and things like that, but it becomes. This, along with the issue at the wharf, becomes folded into this conversation that it feels like is constantly being had in D.C. about, you know, issues of gun violence and all these things. And as ever, the response is always, you know, more police that that, that, that is always a sort of go to from these different city officials, even in this so-called progressive city, about how to address uh, uh, issues of gun violence is to have more police. Now, personally, I consider uh, police Terror to be a form of gun violence, but we don't ever hear, you know, when we talk about or when, 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 you know, th- these officials talk about, you know, gun reform and things like that. There's never any discussion about, you know, disarming the police or things like that. In fact, it's quite the opposite. It's usually uh, some measure designed to further arm the police and uh, all these sorts of things. And so in truth, there's no real um, attempt or no real acknowledgement or analysis of the systemic root of social problems that plague uh, poor working and oppressed communities. And so, you know, we have communities that are treated like like zoos, basically, that need the police 
as uh, uh, the guards to make sure that the animals stay in their cage. And I and I know that that probably sounds harsh, but in reality, I feel like that how it plays out in substance. I mean, you know, I lived in myself. I lived myself in uh, Southeast D.C. for uh, a couple of years. And I mean, I'm not exaggerating when I say that there were times when it just felt like like an outright occupation. Like you come up from the train station and it's just, you know, the, 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 the uh, police SUVs with the lights on and all these sorts of things. I mean, they're just sort of uh, a constant presence. And this sort of thing has an impact on communities and not a positive one. And that's the thing. They say that they're there to, you know, encourage and facilitate public safety and all these things. And they're these crusaders for justice. But in truth, as I've said many times before, they're merely there as a military solution to uh, a social problem. And in truth, these social problems I'm speaking to, they don't exist in, in, a, in a vacuum. They're a direct uh, result of the contradictions of this capitalist system. And so, you know, I don't want to get too deep off into a, a, a rant here, Chuck, but uh, what I'm really getting at is how these kinds of incidents, both at Mochella and the Wharf, um, are often used as justification for even more policing, and that increased policing means an increase in police violence. Well, well absolutely. I mean, just those two incidents, it was January 6th on the Capitol used to get, I believe, $81 million more million to Capitol Police. You, you did terribly. You, people died, and we're going to give you more money to fix it. That's happening right now with Uvalde in Texas. Those police, who, those cowards who didn't do the job, who let kids die, will be getting more money. We need more tactical gear. That's what the answer. If crime goes up, we need more money. If crime goes down, we need more money to keep it down. There's the only constant is we need more money, and that money takes resources away from the community. Now, to your point, I was in, on June 11th, I covered the March for Our Lives. That was the March Against Gun Violence, both on that Saturday when people all over the country came down. And um, before that, the day before, where D.C. activists came. So gun violence is a real thing. And I think your first point is, yes, and, and the, with the D.C. activists, they were having a combined conversation. That conversation was gun violence in the community. We want to get rid of guns and these police officers. So they, they didn't see them as separate, where sometimes the national movement sees it as separate. And that was a problem. But there was something else that was interesting. It, it's not that gun violence is a real is real in D.C. It's that the, the activists say we want a different solution. When this happens elsewhere, and particularly when, when the kids in a school are white, they get a tons of money. There's an incredible outpouring that goes to community-based organizations to deal with it. You know, I'm in D.C. We have someone called Guns Down Friday who does great work. We have community-based organizations. So it's not like the activists in D.C. are saying, you know what, gun violence isn't a problem. It's saying we have better solutions than the police who exacerbate the situation. We have organizations that need funding here desperately in the community to help prevent this violence the same way you might on a national scale where the, the, the young people are white. So no one's denying gun violence is an issue. They're denying what the remedy is, and what the remedy is not is more policing. Yeah, definitely. And I appreciate you raising the, these grassroots anti-violence efforts that we have in D.C. and that have been going on for years, 
for years. I'm talking about uh, groups like Peaceaholics or uh, Ceasefire, Don't Smoke the Brothers and Sisters. I mean, these are groups that have, you know, been operating oftentimes, you know, on a shoestring budget if they have a, a budget at all. And they don't get the resources or the funding or, or the recognition that uh, they could use and, and rightly deserve. But they do the work because they care about their communities and they know that it's important and needs to be done. And so it's been, uh, uh, I don't want to say a, a conversation alone, but certainly an effort, I would say. This notion of community-based uh, public safety has been one that's been happening in D.C. for some time. You know what I mean? And so all of that gets kind of glossed over and, and frankly ignored. There's never any real thought about how to best um support those efforts that are already going on. It's just let's dump more cops in these communities and let that be the quote unquote solution. And the interesting thing is, I feel like a, a lot of that is to sort of allay the concerns and fears of the basically sort of well-off uh, middle-class constituency of the city government. Now, let me be clear. It would be dishonest for me to sit here and say that there isn't support uh, for police in D.C.'s black communities. There are. I mean, I've, I've had these conversations myself. But these, uh, uh, you know, that element of things and that kind of thinking, I mean, it, it stems from this idea that even if they recognize there are issues that poli with police, that um, like anyone, like anyone who want in their community, folks want to be safe where they live, right? And so it it, it comes into a, a contradiction with a number of things because as we've been discussing, this uh, these police surges and this increasing of police presence often doesn't, uh, uh, and I should say rarely ever, really results in a kind of positive impact on violence. So what that means is there has to be some kind of deeper systemic effort beyond the cops that are really addressing uh, the material issues that promote violence and anything else I would argue would still promote violence. Actually, it's just going to continue to promote violence from the police to the community. But we're going to move to our first break of the hour on that note here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Phone lines now open 202-521-1320. That's two. 02521-1320. I continue to be joined by Chuck Modi Anu. And Chuck, uh, a moment ago, you made mention of the Uvalde shooting and just the complete non-response by uh, uh, the police. I should say the, the several different, excuse me, police agencies that actually showed up to this shooting. And uh, there actually is now a report that's been published on uh, uh, the Uvalde shooting and everything that went wrong uh, that sort of focuses on what they call, quote, systemic failures uh, uh, within it, within, uh, I believe, within the policing. Now, I didn't know this, but nearly 400 officers responded to Uvalde on that day of the shooting. 
And, uh, you know, according to reports, it was a small group of officers that ultimately decided to um, confront and shoot and kill uh, the gunman. And we've all seen the videos of them just sort of standing around and getting uh, uh, hand sanitizer and things like this. But uh, what got me, because this this report um, uh, from the Texas House of Representative Investigative Committee on the Rob Elementary shooting, it, it, it actually places some of the blame on like teachers. And I wanted to uh, actually read uh, uh, an excerpt from this uh, report that sort of shows what I'm talking about. If I could just find it. Here we go. In violation of school policy, no one had locked any of the three exterior doors to the West building of Robb Elementary. As a result, the attacker had unimpeded access to enter. Once inside, the attacker continued into adjoining rooms, such and such, probably through the door to room 111 and apparently completely unimpeded. Locking the exterior and interior doors ultimately may not have been enough to stop the attacker from entering the building and classrooms. But had school personnel locked the doors as the school's policy required, that could have slowed his progress for a few precious minutes, long enough to receive alerts, hide children and lock doors, and long enough to give police more opportunity to engage and stop the attacker before he could massacre 19 students and two teachers. Locked doors. Well, what, what does the locked door mean if y'all still just going to show up and, and look at them? You know what I mean? It's like it's just such a, a, a disgusting sort of thing that the way this is all played out. I can't imagine what this must be like for the families, Chuck. But, you know, from your perspective, because to me, uh, I feel like the Uvalde shooting and how the police uh, sort of uh, didn't respond. And I feel like we always, this, this seems like it's always a problem when it comes to these mass shootings. But I think just like the magnitude of Uvalde, I think really drove home just how impotent uh, police are in this situation. But I mean, how are you seeing uh, how this is unfolding, Chuck? Well, it is impotent. And I share your word of disgusting because I can imagine if I'm a parent and if some parents were stopped from going and, and saving their child, and you hear this about the locked door you, to save precious minutes, what about all the minutes you were there? What about the minutes you were there and you just you didn't do anything? So 77. I mean, 77 minutes. Yeah, 77 minutes. And, 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 and in the report, it's 77 pages, and you could, you could cover a lot of ground. And one thing that, that news came out to me that you mentioned is we thought it was like a handful of officers. It was four, nearly 400. So there's nearly 400 around. We don't, we don't see 400 in, in the videos. And what does that tell us? When, when they say we need more funding. Uh, Chuck, I think we lost you there, but I definitely understand uh, what you're saying. And, and I feel like what's being revealed more and more is the fact that regardless of the image of the police that we're given in this country, that, you know, there are protectors and, you know, the first line of defense uh, when something happens to you. But here we had this tragedy that was uh, uh, unfolding right before them. I mean, we, we've seen the videos and it says that, you know, the, the audio of the children screaming have been removed and we just watching them like stand around like a bunch of doofuses. I mean, it, I think it really just uh, uh, goes away to shatter that kind of image. And it's just clear that ultimately the, the police 
do not keep us safe. And uh, even though that is the case, and even though year after year, we continue to see uh, statistics from different cities, uh, uh, be it D.C. or whatever, that, you know, always sensationalizing these crime statistics and things like that. And certainly, as we've been saying, uh, gun violence is real, community uh, violence is real and things like that. And yet and still, all they can do is, is throw more cops at the situation when these communities already have uh, uh, an overrepresentation of the police to begin with. And uh, a shout out to Ricky Ryan in the By Any Means Necessary chat who said, I'm sorry, but this past uh, the blame stuff is really something else. Yeah, it is. It, it, it really is. And I was mentioning earlier about uh, the systemic failures. I was making reference to State Representative Dustin Burroughs, who actually spearheaded the uh, investigation. And uh, he said at a recent news conference, quote, if there's only one thing I can tell you is there were multiple systemic failures. Several officers in the hallway or in that building knew or should have known there was dying in that classroom and they should have done more, acted with urgency. And I mean, if that is not just the the understatement of the year as it pertains to this, then I don't know what is. Uh, Chuck, I think we got you back on there. You there? Sure. I don't know the last thing I said. Yeah, no worries. But we were talking about, uh, 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 you know, Uvalde and this report that has, you know, come out that, I mean, appears at least in some way to be trying to pass the buck from the police. But I want to highlight something that you sort of alluded to a moment ago about how the the image and the narrative around the shooting in terms of, you know, vis-a-vis uh, the police has been manipulated, whether it's, you know, the, the the number of officers that were there and all these sorts of things. I mean, we know that we've, uh, you know, seen real attempts from the police to try to keep, you know, different videos and things for coming out uh, uh, around this. And so to me, that, that feels like its own kind of tacit admission uh, of guilt and sort of admitting your own uh, complete ineffectiveness uh, uh, in doing policing. You know what I mean? And so I feel like, uh, you know, uh, when we talk about this police media manipulation, that seems to be strongly at work here as it pertains to the Uvalde shooting. Yeah, I don't think there's a greater example of defund the police that is explicitly clear than the video we see. And and the report that, as you mentioned, says it was 400 officers, because I didn't know it was that many before that. So if it's 400 officers, it doesn't matter if you have 50 or if you have 100 or if you have 400. It makes no difference. Why do we keep wasting taxpayer money giving, hiring more officers when we know that was not the solution? And this is a microcosm of every single city. Why hiring more police is not a solution. They, what it ends up doing is just having people harass um, people. But it doesn't uh, stop crime, as we see. Yeah. And just sort of uh, passing the buck and this refusal to take accountability. And, you know, in a broader sense, Chuck. If we look at these ongoing issues of mass shootings, racist police terror, uh, all these social ills that are raging right now. I mean, really, the, the, the social fabric in the United States is deteriorating on so many levels for a lot of different reasons. Not only the two that I just mentioned, but, you know, uh, uh, you know, the, the, the growing wealth gap. Uh, you know, all of this wealth inequality, exploitation of workers, which is why we're seeing an uptick in union activity, which is great. You know what I mean? The uh, I feel like this government, this society and really this capitalist system sort of refuses to acknowledge how 
central and really crucial violence is to the very fabric of the United States as we know it. I mean, when you have a country, excuse me, that was birthed in genocide and enslavement and all these sorts of things and just the brutal repression of broad swaths of the population in order to line the pockets of a a wealthy few, I feel like what we're living in right now is the logical conclusion of that. It's the blowback. It's the chickens coming home to roost. And who is suffering this, right? It isn't, you know, uh, the millionaires and the billionaires. They can sit up, you know, in their garish mansions, in their gated communities. And if stuff goes down, they can hide out in a bunker and wait it out and all those sorts of things. But it's the rank and file person in the United States that's just trying to get by to live. It's the poor working and oppressed people who are most vulnerable to not only these existential threats, but uh, uh, to the systemic violence, if you will, that's perpetrated upon them by this capitalist system. You know what I mean? And so the United States culture is violent because this society is violent, right? This government is violent, not just at home, but abroad. We were talking yesterday about this latest uh, quote unquote defense bill from uh, 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 the House, I believe it was, that was $37 billion more than what Joe Biden had even asked for. And so this country is excellent at uh, uh, producing death. If I could put it in that way, it's great at killing and maiming the people in this country, the people all over this world, you know, through its you know, 800 some odd uh, military bases and installations and things like that. It's it has a talent for death, but it has an aversion to life and not even an aversion. But I would argue that it's a straight up enemy to life. And, and why do I phrase it in that way? Because, you know, this system literally blocks off access to life-giving resources, food, clothes, shelter, health care, quality education, gainful employment, all these things that every single solitary human being needs to not just survive, but to thrive, have a dollar amount put on them that makes it inaccessible to so many people. And so whether we're talking about mass shootings or racist police terror, the ruling class, those who are in power, all they can seem to ever really do is shrug their shoulders. They have no solutions. All they got is some mealy mouth, thoughts and prayers, and some legislation that isn't gonna, you know, you know, benefit anyone except the state. It further, you know, disempowering and disarming oppressed communities. You know what I mean? That's all they got. And so for me, that's why it it becomes clearer and clearer that we're going to need an organized effort outside of uh, this mainstream electoral political institution that is really going to, frankly, fight for humanity because we're quickly reaching a point where that is precisely What's at stake? And as a movement journalist, Chuck, I I just wonder how you're you're sort of seeing that in terms of what you see in the streets and what you see from the electeds at different levels. I agree. You know, there's movement politics and there's electoral politics and there's movement politics. And we we need uh, movement politics. I mean, we have 
two of our greatest exports. Our problem abroad and our problem at home is the same. You know, it's more weapons, more police here, and then more military abroad to, to sell weapons, to sell more weapons, to keep um, the the military industrial complex going. At the root of both is capitalism, though. These are our exports. We're the United States is good at weaponry. So whether it's the NRA here um, and or the larger military industrial complex abroad, um, capitalism is not going to allow um, this system to pull back, to pull back, even if the, an individual politician wanted to pull back. It's not within their, their power to do so. So you absolutely need a movement outside the, um, uh, the, the two-party system. Um, and, you know, you see movements in the streets, and sometimes you, you, you're inspired by them, like 2020 and George Floyd, and then you see them subside. You don't know where it is. You're seeing a movement in the street post Roe v. Wade, um, and then you see it subside. You don't know where it is. So it's very hard for me to answer your specific question of, of where things are, because I have been wrong many times where I thought a movement might continue and then it died out. Um, so it's, it's just a hard thing to predict, but we, I, I do know we have to keep fighting and I wish we would take a page out of the, the book of other countries and other countries. When things happen, they get out in the street and by the millions. And I think America, a lot of Americans have just been programmed just to, to deal with it and, and, and take what's coming. And it's, I can't really answer your question, to be honest with you. Well, what you said is still helpful, though, because what you described is the very character of uh, uh, social movements and the street aspect of them in the sense that, you know, there there's an igniting event, you know, racist police killing of George Floyd, overturning of Roe v. Wade, you know, any number of, of uh, uh, very worthy issues that we can name that brings people out into the streets. And then after a period, that sort of tapers off. Well, that's the very nature of things. And see, this is what I try to stress to people, particularly the young folks uh, uh, who come into the movement and think that when the street mobilizations dissipate, that that constitutes a failure. Well, that's not necessarily the case, right? Because what we're supposed to do uh, within this organizing context, because you can't you can't sustain these street mobilizations every single day, particularly with the machinations of the straight that are trying to physically destroy you uh, militarily. You know what I mean? And so this is why there has to be a deeper conversation of how do we sustain this work? What kind of organization, what kind of movement, what kind of structure? Can we put together that's going to sustain this work when we leave the streets? Because at some point that is going to happen. And so we got to always understand is that when we talk about social movements, these are dynamic entities and phenomena in the sense that they have peaks and valleys. They have highs and lows. You know what I mean? And so, you know, everything is not going to feel or look like this uh, a massive mobilization in the streets with thousands of people. And, you know, the, you know, there's like this beautiful kind of feeling, uh, harmony and camaraderie amongst folks that are there. And even when the state attacks, and I, I raise this on the show from time to time, because I just think it's a beautiful example. And, and I believe you saw this happen, Chuck, uh, you know, back in June 1st, when Donald Trump sent federal troops against people and completely cleared what is today Black Lives Matter Plaza. And the very next day, people came back in mask. 
throwing up their middle finger to the White House in a in a sign of defiance to Donald Trump, who was literally driven into a bunker out of fear of the movement. And see, stuff like that, that's why we can't listen to people when they say that the electeds or people in power, quote unquote, don't care what we think. If they didn't care what we think, why did the president of these United States find it necessary to hide in a bunker when that draft leak opinion uh, uh, from Roe leaked and they knew there was going to be a response? Why did they put up these barricades by the Supreme Court when the official decision came down? Why was there police in riot gear here in D.C.? That didn't even they didn't attack anyone, luckily, but they were clearly there as an intimidating force. Why were there police in Arizona that were firing tear gas at uh, uh, people who were mobilizing for the same reason? If they didn't care what you think, why would they do all that? Why would they attack you? Why would they feel the need to preemptively protect these uh, uh, structures and things like that? We have to be clear that. The ruling class knows that there's way more of us than there are of them, and they are afraid. That's why they need the police and these other entities to act as their personal armies. The police are the armed wing of the capitalist state. You see what I mean? And so we have to have clarity around these uh, kinds of things. We cannot listen to these uh, voices that are trying to uh, demobilize us or to uh, uh, drop our morale. No, we have to have a kind of revolutionary optimism, a discipline and a consistency that allows us to stay in the long run of this. Right. So that we can. uh I was trying to think of that metaphor, the sprint or the race. I can't really remember. But you know what? Forget it. Let's go to the Bible. The race is not given to the swift. It's not given to the strong, but is given to who? He that endures. So you and I have to endure in this movement. You feel what I'm saying? And I know there's a lot of mess that can cloud our minds and cloud our judgment. But if we're in organizations and we have a camaraderie orientation towards each other, we can work through it and stay with each other in the fight. But we're going to move to another quick break on that note here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back. So by any means necessary, you're on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. My dear friends, phone lines are still open. 202-521-1320. That's two. 02521-1320. I am here. Chuck Modiano is here. And Chuck, making kind of a hard pivot, pivot, I wanted to touch on this issue with University of Michigan head football coach Jim Harbaugh, who recently appeared at an anti-abortion event and told the crowd, quote, to me, the right choice is to have the courage to let the unborn be born. He says, uh, I love life. I believe in having a loving care and respect for life and death. My faith and my science, (laughs) funny phrase, are what drives these beliefs in me. Quoting from Jeremiah, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. 
Before you were born, I set you apart. I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. And so, you know, it, 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 I mean, there's a couple of things happening here, right? I mean, obviously this is within the uh, landscape of the overturning of Roe v. Wade that we were just discussing a moment ago here on the show in terms of, you know, the role of street movements within social movements and how they're one aspect, but not, you know, sort of the, the end all be all and an important aspect too. You know, I don't want to uh, uh, underplay that. Um, but you know, the thing about football coaches, particularly when they're successful, I mean, not only are they, uh, incredibly popular, I mean, you know, it, it, it becomes a situation where they're even looked upon as uh, political figures, which I suppose is appropriate in its way. I mean, college sports are deeply political, though they try to, you know, cover that up with this, you know, nonsense about, you know, love of the game and the sacredness of the sport and all of that. You know, so it was so sacred that you wouldn't be exploiting all these young people. But before getting even that deep into it, uh, uh, Chuck, I'm just generally curious what do you think about Harbaugh's comments? And as someone who I'm sure is more familiar with this history, how do you think this connects to, you know, other things that we've seen from him? Sure. Well, the big words that he said is to me, comma, to me. If it's to you, then you know what? And, and with your own family, you have the child. That's your own family. It's your own business. So that's to you. Now, at this time, with, with what's happened to Roe v. Wade in this context, for him to use this time to be public, I think that says a lot. And, it, and, and I wonder if it, it, it will turn off a lot of uh, uh, you know, players towards him and then whatnot. That's, of course, a secondary concern. Um, now, Harbaugh, I will say, to his credit in the past, has taken racial justice stances. Um, I mean, I, listen, I, I don't want to overstate it. I'm just saying for a, for a, a white football coach uh, more than others. Um, initially, he was, I, I didn't like how he came out of, about Kaepernick, his first response. Um, it was sort of mealy-mouthed. He didn't like the methodology. I'm with it, but I don't like the methodology, that sort of stance. And then and more recently, he's been very outspoken about Kaepernick deserving another job and had tryouts. But, but what it goes to show is, is also you could be on the right side of, of one issue, and you could be on the wrong side of another issue. And he's definitely on the wrong side here. Um, and it's, it's, it's unfortunate at this, at this particular time. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, I mean, I think that's true. I mean, I think that uh, consciousness is not linear. And, you know, even as you were saying that, I was thinking more about, you know, uh, the role of uh, uh, college coaches as political figures. Uh, Correct me if I'm wrong. Was that... uh yeah, Tommy Tuberville, that became a senator for Alabama after being a, a longtime coach, right? And, and things like this. I mean, you know, for what it's worth, also a, a, a Republican. And, you know, so this is an incredible amount of power that these men have, Chuck, uh, uh, not just over the lives of the young people who they coach, but in terms of their influence over culture and over society, even in terms of their commentary on things that they may not be qualified to even really speak on. You know what I mean? And there just seems to be like this strange double consciousness around college football coaches, where at the same time, they're these very important people but and, you know, certainly very well paid and all of that, but also, quote unquote, just coaches. You know what I mean? So there's sort of like an acknowledgement and a dismissal of the political heft 
of these coaches that people seem to constantly be uh, uh, contending with within this profoundly political world of collegiate sports. Uh, You kind of catch what I'm saying? I do, and I don't think non-sports fans, there's a sports writer in me coming out now, I don't think non-sports fans fully understand the power and influence these, some of these coaches have. I mean, if you talk, first of all, in about 39 states, the highest publicly paid employee is the coach, not the president of the university, mm-hmm. close, it's, it's the head coach. So Nick Saban might make like $11 million a year, $10 million a year. And you know who's the second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh? His assistant coaches, right? So, so like you know, the amount of money that goes into this, that's one way, you know, you measure, but also the influence of Nick Saban in Alabama wanted to run for uh, uh, governor. He feel he'd get it. Yep. And they have incredible, incredible influence, incredible power. And as a sports writer, and I've spoken to other sports writers about this, the greatest pushback, and I mean, wave of pushback a sports writer can get is if they critique one of these white gods, because they're all pretty much all white for the most part, who who is held up on this pedestal. And in my, you know, all all writers get put blowback. If, you know, people can disagree with your article, but the two, by far, in a way, when I wrote an article critiquing Joe Paterno looking the other way, all Penn State just came and drove, wouldn't stop. And when I, when I critiqued, I wrote an article critiquing Nick Saban, because if, if you think at the time, um, who's the general, who's the guy who was running, who, 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 um, he was running for office, but, um, he had, you know, child predator, uh, behavior in the past is boy, it might be Roy something. I can't remember. But anyway, someone was running for office in a, in a neck and neck election. He was running against Doug Jones and I critiqued him for staying silent, for staying silent. Uh, uh, that, the person running for office also said horrible Carmen's harking back to slavery. Some Nick Saban speak up. And in both those cases, the wave that I got of pushback, how can you criticize Nick Saban? It's his job to coach. Or how can you criticize Joe Paterno? He didn't know what was happening. And I, when I say for days and days and days, waves and waves and waves, it was like nothing. And I started to speak to other sports writers and they said, oh yeah, you just messed with God. You mess with God. You mess with Nick Saban, he's God in Alabama, okay? Uh, you mess with Joe Paterno, he's God. There's no other figure in professional sports who holds the reverence of some of these white male college coaches who've been around an institution for a couple of decades. I, there's nothing close, and people can't even wrap their heads around it. I couldn't until I got that pushback. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, uh, speaking of race and football, uh, uh, not to uh, get too random, but, you know, I'm just sort of generally curious your thoughts on this whole controversy around uh, Lamar Jackson uh, of the uh, Baltimore Ravens. And, you know, this discussion around uh, uh, scrutiny of black quarterbacks and things like that, that, you know, he felt was taken out of context and things like this. I mean, it seems like the black quarterback conversation kind of never goes away in the NFL. And I mean, how could it? It, It's, you know, uh, sort of placed within the context of a deeply racist country and culture. But I mean, how are you sort of seeing that, uh, 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 Chuck, in terms of how it's played out and how, you know, uh, uh, Jackson has sort of been betrayed? portrayed here. I mean, I've written extensively on Lamar Jackson and did extensive research on him to cut through the, the racist BS. And I say racist BS is that I don't believe that these critiques would happen to a white pocket uh, quarterback. It happened. Um, the man won an MVP in his second year, putting out some historic 
numbers, okay, historic numbers. So I charted him through his first thousand passes that he ever threw. And I, and the reason I picked first thousand passes was because to, um, keep it normal for other people who maybe took more games or less games. And when I did that at the time in his first thousand passes, he had like the, the fifth highest passer rating ever. And that was if he never ran for a single yard. So people aren't actually responding to the, the, the stats when, when he had like, uh, 30 something uh, touchdowns and only six interceptions. They're responding to a perception and that perception is, is race. And that perception is Lamar Jackson is trying to change the game of football, how they say it, the only way it could be played and saying a dual threat quarterback can win. And that's very, very serious stuff that he's trying to do. So he's going to have some enemies and, and let's be clear. Um, he, he dropped to the, the, the last pick in the first round despite winning the Heisman and looking electrifying. Let's be clear. Bill Polian, one of the most infamous um, executives, I mean, he was a respected executive, six-time executive of the year, saw Lamar Jackson and said, you know what, I want to change him to wide receiver. Luckily, he was retired, and he was retired, and now you know he has egg on his face. But forget the egg on his face. How many black quarterbacks over the years by the Bill Polians and all the general managers have not seen the talent that was before them and changed them to wide receiver. We lost Hall of Famers who are black. And the fact that this is still happening in 2022 shows you how archaic and stereotypical and downright racist these perceptions are. Yeah, and you know, the the position change thing was interesting to me. Um, because, you know, as someone who doesn't really follow conventional sports, I mean, you know, I'm aware that football players change positions. But uh, my question, Chuck, is, is is that sort of thing like we saw with Lamar Jackson, this desire to change him. Is that uh, typical or is that something that we see, uh, you know, with any kind of regularity when it comes to black quarterbacks? Like, do we do we see that a lot or is, you know, is this just something maybe more so specific to Jackson or how do you see that? Oh, it's happened to black quarterbacks. uh all over the years, I mean, mm. for decades, um, I was a Jets fan. There was a guy named Brad Smith who's not known. I would have loved to see him play quarterback to get a shot. And at that time, they were more rigid. You can't be a, a dual threat quarterback. Now, mobility is actually needed. So it's uh, so more mobility is needed that you're seeing some of that change, right? Um, in, in today's game, um, because, you know, at the end of the day, people want to win, but there's always been a double standard for black quarterbacks, particularly black dual threat quarterbacks. And it's this, if you come out the great gate, great, like Russell Wilson, like, um, um, Patrick Mahomes, um, Deshaun Watson, you know, before these, uh, the news happened. So when you come out the gate, great, then the white public will accept you and the white media will accept. And I say that because most of these critics are, are, um, or the white media, the, then you will be accepted. You, but you have to prove it from day one. You, what black quarterbacks do not get is the training period, is the developmental time. Uh, um, freedom to fail is very much a white trait. So you see very few quarterbacks, have, black quarterbacks have any time. You see a, a Vince Young, you see Alex Smith, for instance, who was, was terrible for seven, six years and didn't um, move to seventh. Whereas someone like Vince Young was out of the league. He had far greater 
um, stats, and he was out of the league. So Vince Young was 31 and 19, and Alex Smith was 19 and 31. And he got more chances. And you see Orion Fitzpatrick, and they call him Fitz Magic, who, who lost for eight different teams, had a losing record for eight different teams. And there's always another team saying, you know, I see a little something special. I think you could still maybe start for a team. He started, I think, for nine different teams in the NFL. There's unheard of for a black quarterback. So there's no such thing as the freedom to fail. And freedom to fail is critically important for a quarterback because most quarterbacks don't aren't great outside of out the gate. They're just not. So you, that developmental time is seen as a character flaw in a black quarterback and is seen as a growth process in a white quarterback. Yeah, and see, that, that was going to be my next question in terms of, you know, this uh, looking at, you know, a dual threat player or whatever. I mean, it, it was the aversion to that just a lack of vision? Was it just this racist, uh, uh, you know, aversion to putting a, a black player in that position of leadership? Is it both? I mean, it just seems to me if you have a versatile athlete, then maybe use them in that way. But, you know, that that's just me. But I mean, like, like, how do you parse that in terms of how the sport itself unfolds? Well, it's an archaic, it's an archaic league and it's also a copycat league. But I Mm. also think there's something deeper here is that Lamar Jackson is a threat to the game itself. If Lamar Jackson can prove he can win a Super Bowl as an open dual threat quarterback, not just mobile, but an open dual threat quarterback that puts the ground game in, you know what, you you might see um, uh, (laughs) 80% black quarterbacks in in 10 years, right? And and what, what the white public wants and this is, I have statistics I could show this, but the white public one generally is a white leader. So as you get more more black quarterbacks, you're also seeing a decline in black coaches. Um, so, so as long as you have the coach at the end of the day, you have the white leader. They sell that. That coach is being sold. Sean McVay is a product. He's on T-shirts. He's guiding everyone. And there's incredible psychic value in that feeling for many white sports fans who may not even realize that that's what they're consuming. And so what the NFL is doing is protecting an investment of white leadership. Um, and, and white leadership is a, is a big commodity. That's a fact. Uh, shout out to D.L. Sendero in the By Any Means Necessary chat who said it never goes away because the, quote, scientific racism of biological determinism never goes away. I think that's true on a couple of levels, not only broadly, but even in the specific sense of the NFL, uh, because as we know, there's been this whole issue of uh, uh, race norming uh, that only recently uh, seemingly has actually gone away. And I mean, even, I mean, even the phrase race norming, I mean, it, 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 it's as bad as it sounds. Right. And it's a part of this like long history of racist pseudoscience that, you know, was basically employed to justify the oppression of uh, black people by asserting that, you know, black folks were less intelligent, had less brain capacity. And, you know, they got into things like phonology and measuring your skull and all those sorts of things, you know, entire schools of junk science were constructed and organized to justify the slavery and oppression of black people. That doesn't just go away. You know what I mean? Even after slavery is formally uh, uh, ended because the social attitude that undergirds that still remains. And it's just kind of fascinating to me to look at not only the NFL, but uh, but uh, professional sports in general and collegiate sports, too, as just a microcosm of a lot of, uh, of the racism that is so uh, prevalent and present in 
our uh, uh, society. And on top of that, of course, as we always say, it's that good old fashioned uh, uh, labor exploitation that I think gets glossed over because sometimes we're talking about millionaire uh, football players or millionaire athletes as opposed to, you know, multi-billionaire owners. It takes an incredible amount of money to own a, a professional sports team. It's an exclusive club. And I feel like that's sort of a reflective of the ruling class itself. But we're going to leave it there for today here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. One thing, Chuck Modiano, so much for joining us today. We'll be back tomorrow with all new episodes. So as always, we'll see you next time. Peace. By any means necessary.